Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn it to Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. Uh, if you don't know, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I am the executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship. My wife Michelle and I have been here for a few years uh, in various roles, but uh, we currently serve in the children's ministry. It's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, if you're not involved in that, I highly encourage you to. It's, a, it's really been wonderful watching this gospel-saturated, uh, this biblically-centered teaching that our youth are receiving. So I, I recommend that. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17, says this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd be with us now, Father, as we go through your word. I ask that your spirit would be here with us, and that as we look at this text, Father, that, that we would see the promises that you delivered on, the promises that you delivered on, so that we may enjoy your presence. Father, I ask that, that your spirit would be here, that, that we would not be distracted, Lord, and that we could see the beauty of the gospel in our text this morning. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Has anyone seen Pawn Stars? Who's, who, who likes to show Pawn Stars? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, a few people. Why is everyone ashamed? Why are you ashamed? It's a good show. It's a good show. It's okay. I see you guys kind of a little timid, like people are going to judge me for watching this show. I'm not judging you. What I do like to judge as I'm watching the show is whether or not Rick gets it right. Now, I'm always rooting for the individual who's coming to get money. I'm like, I really hope that they gave Rick a dud and he gave them a lot of money. He's out of money. Like, I don't know what it is. Maybe I want to see the world burn. I'm not sure. But I'm kind of going through it, watching and waiting for Rick to fail. But one of the things that Rick does is he tries to kind of hedge his bet. He brings in the experts. Even though he understands guitars or video games or whatever jewelry that's out there, he'll bring in an expert to verify it. Because he wants that assurance that when he sends his money out there, he's going to get that return on investment. That when he sends his money out there, he's just not throwing it away. 
He wants to make sure that he's spending wisely. He wants that extra layer of protection and assurance that what he's receiving is what he expected to get. In our text this morning, we see John receiving assurance that the, what he's been told and the promises that were given, that he could trust in them, that they would be fulfilled. You know, this is why we kind of go through Scripture uh, here at Redeemer Fellowship book by book. Because as you're going through this and as you're hearing uh, uh, Revelation 7, you really should have been thinking through a number of passages in the Old Testament as well as what we were just studying in Revelation 5. I mean, in Revelation 5, we have this elder that comes before John. And John's weeping and he's crying and he's upset because no one can open the scroll. And that scroll is really important because that scroll is the progressive, it, 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 it's a progressive unfolding of God's salvation plan and his judgment. And so no one on the earth, no one in the, under the earth, no one above the earth can open this scroll or unseal this scroll. And so John's weeping and he's crying because he understands in this utter despair, we have no hope, we are lost in our sins, and we will receive eternal damnation, this rightful wrath of God that we all deserve. And the angel says, weep not. Weep not, for the lamb is here, the lamb who was slain. And here we have the, angel, uh, the, the elder again asking John some questions. Back in chapter 5, it talks about uh, this great mul this multitude, right? That talks about uh, these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And here we have them before us again. So there's this, this connection between Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. And remember, in Revelation 6, Pastor Joe was preaching upon on the, on, uh, the breaking of the six seals. The breaking of the six seals, this, this judgment that's coming upon the earth. And so we have this interlude, this break, in chapter 7. You see, at the beginning part in verses 1 through, through 8 that Pastor Joe was preaching on last week, it's the same thing here. See, in Scripture here, in Revelation 7, we've got this assurance two times here in two different ways. Last week when Pastor Joe was talking about, there's this ideal situation where it talks about here's 144,000 that have been saved. And yet then we see a fuller picture here at the back half of Revelation 7. Where it's not only 144,000 where we're all playing this spiritual hunger games trying to knock the other guy out. But where it is this great multitude, too, num too numerous to count, are among God's people for God's salvation. This text is a beautiful text of the gospel. And it's gonna, you're going to keep being reminded throughout the Old Testament of God's promises all leading up to this recap in chapter 7. And what I would like for us to see this morning is this. Our God delivers on his promises so that we can enjoy his presence. I'll say that again. Our God delivers on his promises so that we can enjoy his presence. And we're going to look at this in two ways, two sections here. The first section, we look at the promises delivered by the Messiah. And then secondly, the presence enjoyed by the redeemed. We have the promises delivered by the Messiah and the presence enjoyed 
by the redeemed. First, let's look at these promises delivered. We know as we look at scripture, we see this covenant that God deals with God's people through covenants. These, these contracts or these, these promises, these agreements, right? That I will do this, you do that, right? And then there will be a reward if you do that. So I will be your God, you will be my people. There's this reward there that we will be together. And then there's also there's this judgment of breaking it. You break it, you will die, Right? You break it. Like actually, Nehemiah chapter 9 is a great example of this. Uh, uh, well, it's a great example of God's redeeming love. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, they recount their history and they start talking about how we walked with you, God. You were with us and among us. We were mighty and we were blessed. But then we went after idols and we sinned against you. And then you judged us, cast us away. Other nations took us over. But then we repented and you came back liberated us, brought us back, we were blessed, things were going great, and then we went to idolatry again. And go just the story over and over again because there's, this, there's these penalties for when we break God's commands or God's promises, the covenant that we have with God. And there's this covenant of redemption before the world even began between God the Father and God the Son where, where Jesus is going to come, that God himself will come, he will take on flesh and that he would represent us, that he would be that perfect Adam, that he would live the perfect life of obedience to God, and that he himself will pay the just penalty for our sin so that we might become, so that we could become children of God. And we have this covenant of redemption before the world began. And in Genesis, we see this covenant of works, and we've got Adam as our federal header, as our representative. He represents you, he represents me. And he's brought into this covenant with God. And he's to fulfill these three roles of prophet, priest, and king. He's supposed to proclaim God's word, keep God's word. He's supposed to tend the, uh, the garden as a priest, as, as if he's tending the temple of God. He's to subdue the earth. He's to, to expand, go be fruitful and multiply. But as you look at scripture, and as you know from, the, from Genesis, he failed. And in him, we've all failed. And he was cast out of this garden. From this moment where he enjoyed this un, uninhibited closeness and communion with God, where he walked with God in the garden, where he enjoyed the presence of God in the garden, he is now cast out from the garden. But in there, we still get this gospel proclamation where God makes a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God makes this promise. He says, this is not it. It's not over. He says to the enemy, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And I want to put, put to you that throughout Scripture is God making good on that promise. Throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, it is God making good on that promise. He will crush or he will bruise his heel, but I will crush his head. I will have ultimate victory over the enemy, over sin, over death, that I will reverse the effects of the curse. And then we have this Abrahamic covenant. You should recognize this a little bit as we're reading this. When it talks about this multitude that's too great to number, too many to number. In Genesis 17, 
right? Abraham talks about that God's with him. He says, I will be your God. You will, you will be my people. And even though you are barren and of old age, uh, uh, Abraham, I will make you into a great people. I will make you into a great nation. That your descendants will be too numerous to count. That you can't even count like the stars in the sky or the sands on the beach. Too many to count. And here now, we're seeing this. But for the people of Israel, they viewed this only as ethnic Israel. Those who are Israelites by the flesh. That they're the only ones that have this promise. That they're the only ones that would be redeemed. That they're the only ones that would be God's people. But we see throughout Scripture that, that God himself was bringing Gentiles, anyone that was of non-Jewish descent, into the fold, that we have been grafted into this family of God. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans 9. For not all who, be, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. How crazy is that? How crazy is that for those that... Those of Jewish descent listening to that, hearing that, what do you mean? God gave this promise to Father Abraham, and we are Abraham's children. We are Abraham's descendants. We are the people of God, and with that, we should be receiving these benefits. We are the people of the circumcision. We have entered into this covenant. How is it that you're telling me then that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel? Because it's not about circumcision of the flesh, but about a circumcision of the heart. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. And that's you and I. You and I as children of the promise. We are now counted as this, as this offspring. And so when God is before is Abraham, and he's entering into this covenant, he's telling him, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. You cannot even count them. That's you. That's me. God gives these promises that he would be victorious. You bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. And in this passage here, we see this, these people that are wearing white robes, right? And later on in the text, it says that they washed in the blood of the lamb, so that their robes were, were white. So we have these white robes, which, which typically, when you hear that, it's, it's about purity, it's about holiness. That's why most often on, on a wedding day, a bride is adorned in white to signify her purity, that she has consecrated herself, that she has set herself apart for her groom. And so she wears white as she goes down the aisle. I mean, in Exodus 19, 10 to 14, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Exodus 19, 10 to 14. Reads this. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Okay, so it says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. So there's this setting apart, right? Consecration, this, this setting apart for a holy purpose. So what is that holy purpose here? And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai 
in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. It's okay. They're being consecrated. They're being set apart. For what purpose? To meet with God, to be in the presence of God. But they can't get too close because they're still, regardless of their washing of their clothes, regardless of their consecrating, consecration ceremonies, they are still unclean, unrighteous, sinfully defiled individuals that they cannot stand before God and live. And so it says here, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but, it, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. So here they prepared themselves to stand before their God, to be in the presence of God, but they can't get close. Even as when, when Moses wanted to see, God put him in the rock and said, okay, you can see the backside. You can't see the front side for you will, you're going to die. You can't behold the entirety of my glory. But it's not enough just to wash their clothes. It's not enough just to go ahead and grab yourself a Tide Pod with Oxy and now you're good to go, right? It has to be washed but by the blood of the Lamb, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So it's not just about this ritual cleansing, this external cleansing, but it's about this real cleansing power of the blood of Christ. That his sin, or that his blood covers our sin. So that we can be reconciled to God. For those who were enemies have been brought near. So the robes are, are wiped by the blood of Christ, but it's also this reward. You know, going back to Revelation 3, verses 4 and 5, says this. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy I love that. For they are worthy. They are worthy of the calling. They are worthy of the calling that God has bestowed upon them. How so? The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. So remember, Revelation 2 and 3, these letters to the churches, it kept talking about their call to overcome, 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 have victory, conquer them. And so here, conquering what? Sin, or temptation, going through these trials and tribulations. As the enemy comes at you, as the enemy tempts you, as you are tempted yourself because you love, you love your sin and you like the sin and you try to find your satisfaction in the sin. Overcome, remain faithful, be steadfast. Follow me, do not give in. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So he got these garments. They're, they're white. There's a ceremonial washing. It needs to be washed by the blood of the lamb. And it's this reward. It's this sign of one that is overcome. It's the sign of the one that received the crown at the end of the race. It's a sign of the one that he enters into, into glory and he hears, well done, good and faithful servant. You have ran the race well. You have overcome. 
But overcome what? Well, it says this great tribulation. These are the ones that come out of this great tribulation. Now, we hear a phrase like that, and because of bad books and bad theology, we have this image of this time period of earth shaking and earthquakes and, and volcanoes erupting and, well, whatever else they had in that book. I, I skimmed past it in the, the early 2000s. But what do we talk about then? Great tribulation. You know, this, this word tribulation, as we find it in Scripture, in the Greek, it's in the present tense. It means now. It means now, the church age. You're within that tribulation now. You put that word great, it's not that it's necessarily a separate act of tribulation, but an increased measure of tribulation, of trials and temptation. I mean, tribulation is for everyone who has experienced hatred and opposition of the enemy. You and I, all of us, as we walk, our, as we walk through our, our days, through our Christian life, as we are faced with trials and temptations, we are living in the midst of this, this tribulation, whether we will overcome or let it overcome us. It's happening now for all of us. But we're promised that there will be victory. You see, there's these palm branches. And as they're hearing about these palm branches, they would be thinking through the, the uh, Feast of the Tabernacle. So in, in Jewish history, they had this Feast of the Tabernacle, and this, uh, they would take these palm branches and they'd make these booths. These booths are just tents that they'd have outside. They'd sleep in it, and they'd use the palm branches to be on top. They'd leave a little bit of a sliver so that they could see the stars and the rain could come through. And it was kind of one of these ideas, this notion of their remembrance of their 40 years of wilderness wandering after they were rescued out of Egypt. After they were rescued out of Egypt and they're wandering the desert for 40 years. And to commemorate that, as well as it's also got a, a, almost like a Thanksgiving, kind of a harvest festival of the first fruits. They would sleep in these booths to remember, during this time, our God sustained us. Our God rescued us, he redeemed us, and he ransomed us out of Egypt. He worked in a mighty way. He worked in a mighty way that he sent plagues, one of which was killing of the firstborn. But he told the people of Israel, listen, grab an unblemished blemished lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and when I come through to strike down the firstborn, I will pass over your home. And your children will be safe. My people will be safe. And so there's these palm branches that they're waving. This remembrance of when we were in exile, when we were in captivity, our God redeemed us. And for those of us in the midst of our tribulation now, in our life now, in the captivity of sin and death, our God has redeemed us. Our God has rescued us and has taken us out of that. He has victory over that. I mean, in John 12, you see this triumphal entry where Jesus triumphantly comes in and it's also during this, this Feast of the Tabernacle that Jesus says two things. So during that week, during that week, uh, they would, within the temple, they would light candles and they would shine it on the walls, right? And it was to, to signify, to signify like that the Messiah is the light to the nations, Right? 
as well as they would go to the pool uh, of Salar, they would take some water, and they'd bring it back to this, this basin that's right next to the altar. Right? And it was to, to signify that, that he is living water, that God himself will give us everything. Well, it was during that week that Jesus said two things. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am a light to the Gentiles, and that I am living water. And even in, this, in the text here, you see that reference. Neither will they thirst anymore. You see, in Scripture, as, as you're reading it, as you're coming to Revelation 7, there's all these connections to these promises that God had given, these, these types, these precursors, these pictures of what he would do to redeem us, what he would do to gather us back together again, to gather his people together as one. He says, I am the light of the world. I am living water. And I love that. With one voice it says here, even though it says tongue, tribe, nations, all these different people groups and ethnicities, here in one voice, they cry out. You know, I think about in, in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, where they had one voice and they were in one spot and God disperses them, giving them different voice, different languages, and so they couldn't understand each other, so they couldn't continue to build, and so they had to be scattered throughout. And here then we see God gathering them back together again as one voice. That's not to downplay the beauty of diversity. That's not to downplay the beauty of different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures. That's not what this is saying here. But what it is saying, though, is that is superseded by our unity in the blood of the Lamb. It doesn't matter where you came from or, or what your background is. The blood of Christ unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is more important than anything else, any language, any ethnicity, any nationality. Because as one, we are one people of God, bought by the blood of the Lamb. And we declare in one voice praise for him. And what does it say here? Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One voice. God is the total package. There's seven attributes there. It's not exhaustive. It's saying that there's nothing else about God. But that number seven, as we know, is pointing to he's complete. He is whole. He is everything we need. And as we praise and worship him, he is everything and the only thing. Our God delivers on his promises so that we can enjoy his presence. And so when we talk about this presence being enjoyed, I love this in verse 14. The elder asked him, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. I love that. They stand before God. Again, like I said at the beginning, when you look at Genesis and you look at the garden, you look at Adam being cast out. This is what's really beautiful to me is you putting those that from that point on, 
Scripture is pointing to us being brought back before our God. Where Adam is able to stand unashamed, unafraid, completely enjoying the presence of God. And we said, we even looked at Leviticus, like uh, we looked at other passages where you, uh, in Exodus where you couldn't even come up to the mountain, you touched it, you're going to die. Here now we get to stand before our God. That's what this has all been pointing back to. That's what the scriptures are pointing us to. Scriptures is pointing us that you were far off. You were in exile. You have been cast out because of your sin. But I have redeemed you. I have made a way for you. And you will stand before my throne in my presence forever. Forever. This is the promise that God has been given us. And this is the fulfillment of that. That we would be back before him. Stand before the throne of God. And it says we will serve him day and night. You know, this picture there is that of, 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 of the priesthood. But we know it's not a physical temple because in Revelation 21 says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's God himself. It's God himself. Brothers and sisters, listen to the beauty of this. You know, think about this. This image of the temple in Scripture, there was different, different uh, uh, boundaries. Gentiles can only go so far. Women can only go so far. Men can only go so far. Priests can only go so far. And then only one place that the high, the, uh, high priest was able to go was in the Holy of Holies. And that's where the ark was. The presence of God was there. And only one day a year they could go. And they had to go through all this cleansing ceremony, this consecrating ceremony, so they could quote-unquote, be ceremonially clean to enter in. And they would enter in and offer up sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the Jewish people. And yet here now, that has just been, I mean, the image, the image of Jesus' death on the cross and the veil being torn in the temple. Scripture talks about that. Where now we have this access to God and here we see you will stand before his throne and serve him day and night forever. We will always be in his presence. I love this. I love this. Because as you go from the garden to the temple, all we're trying to do is to get back before our God. To enjoy him, to behold him, to bask in his glory and in his presence. And now, always in his presence, this communion with God. You know, when we talk about our relationship with God, there's two aspects. There's union and communion. And when we talk about union, we're talking about the justification that we have. We've been declared righteous by our God because of what Jesus had done on the cross. And there's that union, there's that connection that can never, ever, ever be broken. Ever. But there's still communion with God. And John Owen talks about how our communion with God ebbs and flows Think about it, when you go to a conference or you go to a, 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 a retreat or sometimes maybe you have this great worship service and you come out on this high, you got this relation, you're like, you're thinking Jesus is good, God is great, I love him, I love him more, I can sense his presence. You have this mountaintop experience, but often though we live our days down in the valley where we wonder, where are you, God? Where are you in the midst of this? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in my suffering? Why am, I not, why am I not thriving right now? 
Why is it that there's so much injustice in the world? Why is it that the wicked flourish and yet I stand by your statutes, I stand by your rules, and yet I am still without and struggling? It's in these valleys that we begin to doubt and we begin to to wonder, is God real? But it's in the valley where we really learn what it means to commune with God. And in the end here, it's showing us we will have that perfect communion with God. This unfiltered communion with God. This covenantal communion with God. Because for the gardens of the temple, Adam broke this. Adam broke this. But Jesus restores this. This relationship that we have with our God. And it says that we're protected by his presence. I love this about the, this passage. I love this about this passage. Ezekiel 37, there's Zechariah 8, but for our purposes, Leviticus 26, verses 11 to 12, says this, I will make my dwelling among you. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's beautiful. I mean, Revelation 21, verses 2 to 3 also says this. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. When Adam sinned, and when Adam fell, Adam ran from his presence. But see, we get to rejoice in his presence. One day we will stand before him and rejoice and be with our God forever. I think it was John Piper once wrote, I think it was in uh, his book, God is the Gospel, and he asked this question. I think it was, I think it was Piper. Everything's Piper, he's so great. Um, but he asked this question, uh, and it had always stuck with me. If you can get to heaven and God's not there, would you still want to go? That was a really intriguing question. Because at that point, it really then begs to answer, you have to ask the question, is he the one that I want? Or is it that I'm looking for security and safety? Is, it that, is, is salvation all about escaping the wrath of God? Right? Is salvation all about getting to heaven and living forever? Is salvation all about a destination or is it about, it, uh, about God himself? And I think that's really, really crucial to ask ourselves. Because as we look at scripture, we look at Revelation 7, it's all pointing back to him. That your salvation is going to be in his presence. That's your reward forever. You are going to get back to what it was meant to be in the garden. In the garden, you were meant to walk with your God, unashamed, unafraid, rejoicing in his presence. You were meant to walk with him. You were meant to, as as Moses experienced, talk to God as a friend talks to a friend, face to face. You were meant for this. And scripture is... The scripture is the story, it's the incident, it's the account of God himself intervening in human history to bring you back to that. Beloved, 
when we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about getting out of hell. We're not just talking about escaping God's wrath. But we are talking about entering into his presence forever. And if that's not your desire, he is not your God. That is where our heart and our affection should be leading us towards. More of him. More of him. More of his presence in our lives. I want more of God for me and for you. I want more of him. I want to be with him. I want to see him. I want to bask in his glory and his presence. Where it says we don't need the sun because it's so bright, because he's so radiant. I want to stand before my God and his, and his throne. And I know that's the ultimate reward. And I know that's what you want as well and you need as well. Everything else is less. Everything else is worthless. This Revelation 7 is just reminding that God, give, God makes good on his promises so that you can enjoy his presence forever. That's the goal. That's the goal. And it says, in him is everything that we need. You will neither hunger nor thirst. You know that, that, that no hunger, no thirst, or you know, the sun scorching them? I mean, that's Isaiah 49.10. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Sounds familiar, right? Well, in Isaiah, that's, that's talking about the Israelites returning from Babylonian exile. So Revelation 7 is chocked full of these allusions back to different parts of, of Israelites' history. When you were saved and rescued out of this bondage of sin and uh, of slavery from Egypt, and you were away where people fall out far off in exile, and I draw, drew you back. And in both cases, coming to this point of standing before your God, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Finally, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, all that you need, and nothing else. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know that, I love that, that passage, right? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Um, and it's great, and I know it's a great comfort. I know that there's people here that are suffering. I know there's people here that rejoice in knowing that God will wipe away every tear. I know that there's people here that have been crying and have been crying out to God for, for, for resolution for peace, that I have been crying out to God that he would wipe away their tears. And it's such a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful picture. But that picture is made more beautiful when you understand the context that is because you are now in the presence of your God forever. It's not just he wipes away and leaves. It's that he comforts and embraces. It's that he is with you forever. All injustice in the world is gone. All pain in the world is gone. All suffering in the world is gone. The situations that you're in, the struggles that you're finding yourself in, the, lack, the, the despair and the lack of hope, the suffering, the pain, 
All of that is gone. I remember one night, I remember one night I was in such despair, just utter despair. And we were living in Canada. I remember crying out over the situation. I was crying out to God in the middle of the night. I just woke up. I just woke up and just started crying, just bawling and saying, Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you to intervene. I need you to take care. I need your presence in this. I need you to be a part of this situation. I need you to fix this. I need you to be here with me because I can't do this. I want you. I want out of this. Lord, come. Lord, come. I, I got to get out of this. I want to be with you where I won't have to deal with this anymore. I can just be with you and rejoice in your presence. And one day we will get to leave all that. They wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's even more beautiful knowing we're in his presence forever. His love, his forgiveness, his mercy. Just a beautiful, beautiful passage. Isaiah 25.8 He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Why? For the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, our God delivers on his promises. We can be assured of that. And John was assured of this. God will deliver on his promises. We fail each other and one another. We don't do it intentionally oftentimes, but it happens. Sometimes we're like Rick and we buy a dud. But here, our God delivers on his promises so that we can enjoy his presence. And we get to enjoy that forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for how beautiful it is. I thank you, Jesus, for the, the promises that we have in you, the hope that we have in you. And Lord, I just, I ask that you'd be working on, on my heart and our hearts, that we would desire you more, that we would want more of you, that we're not just coming here as partakers and just trying to, to kind of get what we can out of it, that we're not just going through the motions and the routine, but that this is real, that this is real, that we want you. We don't want just the gifts, we want the giver of gifts. And Father, I pray that those, anything that gets in the way of our communion and our, and our, our relationship with you now, Father, that, that we would abandon that sin and we would cling to you. That we would desire you more. We pray this in your name. Amen.